welcome to the archives of Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. The fact that governments spy on each other is no secret. The fact that they also collect data about the lives of millions of innocent citizens worldwide was unknown to many people when this interview was first recorded in 1999. Mike Frost, the author of Spy World, inside the Canadian and American intelligence establishments, worked as a spy for over 30 years prior to his retirement in 1990. Frost traveled worldwide, setting up devices to intercept what were thought to be secret international communications. He has many thoughts and considerations about his former job that he shared in this interview. I spoke with Mike Frost from his home near Ottawa, Canada, in this, the first of a two-part series from the Radio Curious Archives, recorded in April 1999. We began when I asked him what prompted him to write Spy World and to tell us what spies do. That's a a very easy question to answer, actually, Barry, because uh, when I left the communication security establishment on retirement in 1990, I walked out of there with absolutely nothing, just just me, myself, and I. And my intention was to spend my winters in Florida and spend my summers in Canada and enjoy retirement. But after a few months of retirement, something kept gnawing away at me that, that perhaps what I did for so many years wasn't all that moral or ethical. And I wondered if there was anything I could do about that, uh, letting people know, for instance, uh, some of the, the capabilities of these organizations. And I thought, well, maybe maybe a magazine article or something. So when I came back to Canada for my summer vacation, I contacted a, a journalist here in Ottawa and su- suggested that perhaps I could write a magazine article. And when he heard what I had to say, he said, hey, Mike, you've got a book here. Uh, how would you like to, to get together and put a book out? And I said, well... Let me think about it. And I did. I thought about it for a while, and, and hence the book uh, Spy World was born. Uh, well, Mike, what, what are some of the issues that you define as uh, not moral or not ethical? Okay, for, for instance, Barry, we have an organization in Canada called the CSE that uh, openly monitors radio communications for uh, anything that they think could provide our government with intelligence in the, in the area of arms buildup for troop movements and things like that. But while this is being done, other things are also being intercepted, like private telephone calls, ATM transactions, credit card usage, email, the list goes on. Well, and, let, me, let me stop you there if sure. I can, because we're including a lot in the term radio communications. <laughs> and I'd like our listeners to understand that radio communications includes more than perhaps... Um, coded radio messages between embassies. Absolutely, Barry. Today, just about everything is going by wireless communication, so it must be radiated somehow. And uh, I just use the term radio communications because uh, so much of this information now is carried through the airwaves, and it is so susceptible to being intercepted by people with uh, some expensive equipment, some with very cheap equipment. Well, tell us how that's done. Go ahead. Tell us how that's done. Well, for instance, uh, 
every every radio transmission must have some form of identification on it, be it your ATM transaction, your credit card usage, your telephone calls, your cell phones. It must have some form of identification on it. Finding out this identifier is a very easy thing to do. So once you have the identifier, you can key your computer to intercept any communications with that identifier. Another way very easily is to ask your computer to pick out communications containing a certain word, be that word a terrorist, bomb, uh, you name it, Clinton, Monica, all these words can be fed into a, a computer's dictionary and the computer will scan all the communications that are fed into that computer and spit out the communications containing the words that you fed into the dictionary. Another way is by voice recognition. If you have a good a sample of a person's voice, you can now feed that into a supercomputer and ask the computer to give you all the conversations that are made with this voice. That's another way you can do it. There are a number of ways you can do it, Mary. The, generally speaking, I, could, I would be very accurate in saying that all communications are intercepted. All communications. I mean taxi cabs, police, ambulances, email, faxes, uh, on and on. Everything is intercepted. That's the easy part. The hard part is finding what you want. So you get supercomputers to do the sifting through for you. And then you end up with the final product. For instance, uh, in, let's say, the Washington, D.C. area, there's a number of political people using cell phones and car phones. Well, if all those communications are intercepted and you ask the computer to give you the, only the communications made by Ken Starr, the computer will do that for you. That, it, that's just basically how it's run. And it comes out in printed form and voice recognition typed it, out on paper? It can come out in printed form, but usually the voice comes out in an audio form, which can be, of course, transcribed to paper. If it's a digital transmission, it can, it can be made to, to come out in paper, usually on the screen of a, of a monitor or something. But hard copy is very easily made. So you're implying that uh, there is an invasion into the privacy of people's lives. I, I am not really implying, Barry. I'm saying that this happens on a regular basis. Uh, everyone is susceptible to having their communications intercepted. Everyone. And most of us probably have somewhere along the way, and we're not even aware of it. We have these organizations, both in your country and mine, with huge budgets, very huge budgets. The NSA, for instance, reportedly their budget is somewhere around $4 billion annually. That's a very, very big budget. And with very little or no accountability, these agencies can virtually do what they want and uh, intercept your conversations at will. Well, you have about a quarter of a century working in the spy network of the Canadian government. Right, yeah. And you've observed closely what the United States government has done on this. Oh, absolutely. I've done a, a fair amount of work for the, the U.S. government in, in uh, various ways. Why is the U.S. government or the Canadian government uh, delving into the private lives of individuals in this way? Well, they don't necessarily do that, Barry. They, it, it happens that people fall through the cracks. Now, there is legislation in your company, uh, sorry, in your country and mine, preventing this sort of thing. But since we all work together, when I say we all, there are five countries involved: the United States, Great Britain, Canada, Australia, New Zealand. We all work together, and if it is unlawful for this type of work to be done by your government in your country. It is not against the law for our government to do it in our country for you. So it's a sort of a quote 
situation here where governments sort of circumvent their own legislation and get the other countries to do that sort of work for them. But I'm not trying to say that agencies like the NSA or the CSE or the GCHQ in Britain should not exist. They, they have to exist, and they do some terribly good work, very, very good work in the area of terrorist activity, drug lords, uh, illegal immigration, uh, and the list goes on and on. They do some very, very good work. My concern is that while they're doing this work and while they're producing intelligence on these topics, innocent people like you and I fall through the cracks. Explain what you mean by that, Mike. Okay. Let, well, this conversation that, that we're having right now over the phone, I, I am in eastern Canada and you're in the western U.S., a good portion of this conversation is being transmitted through the airwaves. So it's open to intercept. Now, I have, so far since this interview started, I have said a number of keywords or phrases that would make the computer hiccup. For instance, I mentioned NSA, I mentioned Ken Starr, I mentioned Clinton. These are just ones that come to mind. These keywords are probably or could easily be in one of the very many supercomputers at the NSA. So this conversation now is probably being uh, highlighted for further analysis. Now, we're not saying anything that is detrimental to the national security of your country or mine, but this conversation is now being probably looked at or will be looked at very shortly by an analyst at, uh, at the NSA. If I, for instance, say to you, I'm going to bomb the U.S. Embassy today, wow, that's a goodie. That would certainly get their attention. That would certainly get their attention. Now, if I'm just joking... You know, it, it's still nothing that you should joke about. Now, let's say I don't say it quite so emphatically. I, I just say, oh, well, I feel like really blowing them up sometimes. Something a little less uh, emphatic. The analyst would have to look at this conversation and say, now, gee, did he really mean he was going to do that, or was he just kidding? Now, people being uh, human, they would rather err on the side of what's good for them. So rather than saying, no, he's just kidding, they could flag me as being a possible terrorist because I mentioned something about blowing somebody up. So immediately now, my name and my telephone number, one or both of those, are in the computer as being a probable terrorist or conducting probable terrorist activity. Now, these databases are held indefinitely, and I can't go to the NSA in the States or the CSE in Canada and say, hey, I'd like to see uh, the, the data that you have on me and ask for it because you can't get it. So these agencies hold these databases forever. Now, let's say two or three months from now, I make a, another phone call and I say something similar to that about uh, bombing somebody or, or blowing something up, something very innocuous. The computer will spit out my name or phone number again, and this would be the second hit. So maybe the analyst now says, hey, this is the second hit. We should maybe move this guy up from a, uh, from a possible to a probable. So now I end up being listed somewhere in some database as being a probable terrorist. And all I've been doing is, is just mentioning maybe I got bombed last night. Instead of bombing, I got drunk or something very innocuous like that. And people do fall through the cracks time and time and time again. I've seen it happen numerous times. Well, what happens? Someone has fallen through the cracks. They, they have come up uh, on the database a half a dozen times because of what they talk about or how it was interpreted. What's the next step that these governmental agencies would do? Well, that, that, is, that is very difficult to say because, you know, we're talking a hypothetical situation right now. But let's say, 
let's just say now, hypothetical situation, a chap coming out of college has caused the computer to hiccup a few times on some very innocuous words he has said over the phone or over his cell phone during the last two or three years. He now applies for, the, for a job within the government. The government would do a security check on him, and it could come up, hey, this man is a probable terrorist or a probable whatever, and he'd not get the job. Now, he would never know why. You see, this is the problem. He would never know why he was turned down for this job. But that sort of thing can happen very easily. Are there checks at um, international borders? Does the customs agency or the immigration agency uh, computer have access to this information? I can't comment on that, Barry. I don't know. I, I do know that in Canada, one of our consumers were uh, immigration people. So, you know, when I was at the CSE and, and we wrote reports dealing with this immigration, we would send them to the Department of Immigration. So that information would be available to them. Now, whether they would use it or not, I, I can't comment on that. I don't know. In this archive edition of Radio Curious, recorded in April 1999, we visit with Mike Frost, a retired Canadian spy and author of Spy World, Inside the Canadian and American Intelligence Establishments. I'm Barry Vogel. Mike, um, your conscience picked at you a little bit. Certainly did, Barry, yes. Tell us about that. Well... I, I just, as I said, I, I went to Florida and I wanted to get fat, play golf, and get a tan. Well, I, I did all those things, not necessarily in that order, but I did them all. But something something just continued to gnaw at me. And I, I just thought that perhaps what I did to earn a living for some 34 years wasn't all that moral. It wasn't all that ethical. And I thought that Canadians had a right to know that this organization existed and what they were capable of doing. And it, it just bothered me. It's not that I'm, I don't consider myself a hero or even a whistleblower. I just thought perhaps that, that Canadians should know. Uh, I don't know what it's like in your country, but people that write books in my country certainly don't get any monetary gains from it. So it wasn't from a financial point of view or anything. I just wanted to write a magazine article or a book telling Canadians that uh, these organizations existed and they should be careful and they should be aware and this is where the taxpayer, their money is going and maybe they should have a voice in how this money is spent. Did these pangs of conscience um, uh, cramp uh, you, or did you feel them during your work, during the 34 years? No, not at all, Barry, because uh, my focus was on doing my job and, and doing what I had to do, and no, it didn't, didn't bother me at all. One, one, yeah, one exception. I was asked once uh, by my boss, who he was asked by the, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, to mount a, a intercept operation against the prime minister's wife, uh, the the story was that they suspected her of smoking dope, and they wanted to find out if, in actual fact, she was. This was Margaret Trudeau. Margaret Trudeau, yes, in the early seventies, around nineteen seventy-five, I believe, and I was tasked with that job. I, I set up a little receiver and antenna right in the, the CSE, the top floor of the CSE, and I was given the frequencies of the car phone. This was days before the cell phone. And I actually did attempt to pick out the telephone conversations of our prime minister's wife. And that that did bother me. I mean, she was, after all, the prime minister's wife. And that, that did bother me. I thought at the time, this is not right. But I continued to do it, although I didn't 
do a very good job. I really didn't want to hear her using her car phone, and I didn't. I was kind of happy about that. Mike, in the early part of your book, you uh, talk about your childhood, and you talk about uh, some bouts that you had with alcoholism yeah. that overtook you. Yeah. During the time that you were working as a spy, did alcoholism get in your way? No, as a matter of fact, I think it probably helped me because, as you know, well know, at cocktail parties, it's a great place to, to find things out. And as I was doing a lot of work at Canadian embassies abroad, there were cocktail parties, and I would go to those and talk to various people from, from the, the country that I was in. Uh, it didn't really get in my way. However, towards the end of my career, as alcohol continued to, uh, the, the consumption of alcohol continued to increase, I am sure that the quality of my work decreased by the same way. And uh, towards the end, yeah, it was, it was uh, causing me some concern towards the end of my career. Is that a common uh, uh, risk uh, or occupational hazard, if you will, among people in the spy business? I can't comment for them, Barry. I, I can just comment uh, on my own experience. Uh, alcoholism runs in my family. I, I happen to believe that it is a genetic as well as an environmental disease. And it just, it, the type of work I did made it easy for my disease to blossom. And that, I, I think that could be probably part of the job. But for me, it, I think it was also genetic. And I'd like to add now, it's been almost 10 years since I've had a drink. So that's kind of nice, too. Mike, um, you talked uh, in the book about how you became a stranger to your family. Yes. Um, you wrote that uh, you became even more of a stranger to members of your family as a result of a much deeper transformation. What was that transformation? Well, you, you see, it, it's difficult to explain unless you've actually been there. But when I'm a was at work talking to my coworkers or, or the people that I worked with. I could discuss things with them that I couldn't discuss with my wife. I couldn't even discuss with my kids. If I was going away uh, on a business trip, I would say to my kids, "You know, I'm, I'm just I'm going to Europe for two or three weeks, and I'll, I'll be back. And when I get to the airport, I'll give you a shout. Maybe you guys can come to the airport and pick me up." They didn't like that because my rules in the house were also that if they went out anywhere, they would have to tell their mother or I where they were going and when they'd be home. So we had a double standard here. And I, I continued to kind of move away from the, the fatherly husband-type responsibilities and start to concentrate and focus on my professional life. And then I started sort of transforming some of my professional thoughts into the way I was running my home, and, and that just didn't work out. My, my wife... My wife, she, she went through an awful lot because I'd go away to Africa or behind the Iron Curtain, and she wouldn't even know where I was or when I'd be home. She knew that if she had to reach me, she could through the Department of Foreign Affairs here in Ottawa, but it would be a time-consuming and very awkward way to get a hold of me. And it was very, very difficult for her. And I didn't even see that at the time until, you know, when I, when I retired and started to talk to my children about writing this book, I asked them how they felt. And I then found out how they actually... Uh, had a lot of resentment towards me for the many, many years I, I was doing that work. Is that the deeper transformation? Yeah, I guess you could call it that, yeah. 
Would you have done that kind of work again, knowing what you know now, how it affected you personally and affected your family? Not with the same rules, no. If I, if I were to do this all over again, uh, hindsight being what it is, I would ask for different rules. What would those rules be? I would ask that I could tell my family where I was going. I would ask that I could at least let my wife know the, the dangers involved and the risk involved and how that might impact on, on her life and how she raises the kids. I would also uh, ask that the government pay particular attention to people when they start to to slowly uh, sort of build up resentments towards either their family or work. In other words, some form of psychological counseling or at, at least testing every now and then. I would also ask that the governments provide a better uh, backing for one, if you will, when, when overseas doing this type of work. Uh, it was made quite clear to me that if I should have got myself into an embarrassing situation, say behind the Iron Curtain, I would have to get myself out. On your own? Yes. And uh, that, I think, was asking a lot of an individual. At the time, I thought, oh, well, you know, I'm bulletproof. I'll get through this. Unfortunately, I did. I, I never did get caught anything. But I, I, I think now with, with uh, the openness that the, our world has today with each other, with the countries in this world, I think perhaps we should at least give our espionage people a little uh, more encouragement and a comfortable feeling that when they're overseas, if they get caught, at least their governments would help them to get uncaught. Would these new rules, as you describe them, uh, interfere with the ability of a spy in spying? No. To achieve um, the secret data thereafter? Yeah, I suppose, I suppose it could, but again, this is hypothetical because I, I, I don't know. For, for me, I think perhaps that had I thought or known that my government would back me 100%, I may have taken even more of a risk and then increased your chance of getting caught. I, I don't know. Uh, it never bothered me that much at the time. It's only bothered me a little bit since I retired, but uh, it never really hampered my, my performance uh, overseas at all, I don't think. Mike, uh, take a moment, if you would, please, and tell us some of the stories or a story of a risk that you took when you didn't realize you were taking it. Um, let me think of one. Um, oh, I could probably tell you when I was trying to clear uh, immigration getting into Bucharest. This was the days of Ceausescu, and, and some of your listeners may know that he wasn't a very nice person to have around, especially running a country. And Canada wanted to mount an operation in Bucharest. And I was the one that was designated to go to Bucharest and check out our embassy, talk to the ambassador, and, and see if we could, in fact, run a espionage operation from the safe confines of the Canadian embassy there. Prior to going to, to Bucharest, I visited our, our Foreign Affairs Department, and they told me that I must surrender two passport pictures to the, the immigration authorities on clearing customs in Bucharest. So I, I went to the passport office at the CSE where I worked and asked them for two passport pictures, and, and they gave me a couple. I just stuck them in my wallet, never thought anything more about it, until I was clearing customs in Bucharest, and I remembered I had to surrender two passport pictures. Apparently this is quite a common practice. And uh, bear in mind now, I'm entering Bucharest undercover uh, for the sole purpose of, of spying on, on the Romanian government in the Ceausescu days. I brought out the two passport pictures to surrender them to the immigration authorities, and just for some reason I just turned them over and looked at the back. 
and a stamp stamp right on the back was Department Property of Department of National Defense Communication Security Establishment, Ottawa, Canada. So had I not looked at the back of those two passport pictures and turned them over as I should have, I my entire cover would have been blown and I would have been in in a very very serious situation. What would have happened? I I just don't even want to think about it, Barry, but <laughs> You know, in the days of Ceausescu, you can almost imagine anything might have happened. You would have been imprisoned as a spy? Oh, certainly I could have been, because it was quite clear who I worked for, and it was quite clear that I was coming into that country under uh, different pretenses. So it was was obviously to the immigration authorities I was going to be doing something that wasn't so proper. I I didn't even like to think what might have happened to me that day. As it was, I had to clear customs and immigration without the two pictures, because I, I promptly stuck them in my cheeks and left them there until I was able to, to get outside, and, and uh, I think I chewed them up, as a matter of fact. That was something that just sprung up right, you know, and you had to think right on your feet, because I was second in line for, for the, the immigration authorities there, and I was just right there in, in view of everyone. I looked at these two pictures, and now what do I do? So that, that could have been a very serious compromise. What sort of things were you looking for uh, to observe while you were on that trip uh, to Romania? Well, for a signals intelligence operation to be a success uh, anywhere, first of all, you have to have access to the target communications, be it uh, by microwave tower or satellite or what we call close-in when you're going after very low radiated uh, signals such as from the monitor of your computer or or any other equipment you might have. So you have to have the potential for being successful from an environmental point of view. The other thing you have to look for is can can the the embassy that that you're working in house such an operation without presenting too much of a risk to either A, getting caught, or B, the people working in the embassy who are not told of this operation. And C, does the ambassador of that embassy agree that this can be done in his embassy? Because if he says no, game over, that's it, you go home, you don't even consider it. So there are a number of things you have to look for from a technical point of view, an environmental point of view, and then, of course, permission from the the captain of the ship, if you will, in in that city. And since uh, you can't communicate uh, without fear of interception of your messages, you don't have the communication with the ambassador until you're walking with them on the street. The uh, hardest part of all, Barry, that's one of the hardest things I had to do, was walk down the busiest, noisiest street that I could find, talking to the ambassador, trying to convince him convince him of something he really didn't want to do because it was presenting some risk to to him and and his people. So you're trying to convince this ambassador that, yeah, this is the best thing for him since sliced bread, and you're walking down the sidewalk of very busy streets in in some countries where the sidewalks are are very hectic places to be, and trying to keep your wits about you and and, uh, convince the ambassador this is the thing that he needs. A very difficult thing to do. And the ambassador is talking with this stranger who comes out of nowhere, and the other staff people Absolutely, wonder, because who is Mike Frost? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, Mike Frost, I want to thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. And before we close, I want to ask you the question I ask all of my guests, and that is, could you tell us of an interesting book or movie that you've read or seen lately? Well, I, I, I don't do a lot of reading, and I, I go to very few movies, but... Yeah, I can tell you about a movie that really impacted on me, and that was October Sky. I I thoroughly enjoyed that movie. I I was brought to tears in some parts, and I I was laughing in others. I I felt 
that that movie really got to me emotionally, and I enjoyed it immensely. And, and uh, I'll remember that movie for a long time. Well, Mike Frost, thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. My pleasure, Barry. Mike Frost is the author of Spy World, Inside the Canadian and American Intelligence Establishments. He recommends the movie October Sky. This program from the archives of Radio Curious was recorded and originally broadcast in April 1999. There are over 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org. And I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 707 707- 621-5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer, Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.